nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Thank you so much for joining us today for Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and today we're going to talk about a topic that I have covered a couple of times, but more on the track of with adults. So uh, the title of this segment today is Nursing, a Voice to Expose Human Trafficking of Children. So a very serious uh, kind of one, but we're going to learn a lot about it and what nurses can do. So in a world uh, caught up in multiple crises, the global warming, a rabid election process, uh, COVID-19 and systemic racism, who uh, who is there out there to notice that human trafficking is continuing at breakneck speed? My guest, just Dr. Jessica Peck, a pediatric nurse practitioner for over 20 years is not just paying attention. She is active in many different avenues to arrest this menace and keep it from continuing in society. She is an expert pediatric clinician and anti-trafficking advocate who provides innovative, visionary, and award-winning leadership to develop and lead inclusive and diverse interprofessional teams in multiple arenas to provide outcomes of high-quality health care. She is recognized and a published national expert. Uh, about human trafficking, and she worked with other national organizations to equip healthcare professionals to combat human trafficking of children and advocates for other vulnerable youth populations. So I am very, very happy to be able to introduce and welcome uh, Dr. Jessica Peck. Uh, thank you so much for coming, and I would love to hear how you got into nursing and how you got into this aspect of nursing. Well, Leanne, thank you so much for having me on the show today. And, you know, as you read my credentials, I feel like somewhere my, my grandmother is just beaming and smiling because you hear <laughs> those accolades and credentials. But it's really important to me to always remember my roots. And I was actually mm-hmm. the first woman in my family to get a university education as the oldest of five children. And growing up really with not much money at all, college seemed completely inaccessible to me. And as mm-hmm. a woman, the only two viable pathways to me at the time appeared to be teaching or nursing, and you couldn't get a teaching degree at a community college, so nursing it was. And at the time, you know, I worked three jobs to put myself through school, and to be honest, I was really not an excellent student. I had a goal of passing and remaining <laughs> invisible, which I did achieve both of those. But after that, I met and married an engineer from Penn State, and he really encouraged me to go back for my bachelor's degree because he saw my potential really before I did. And truth be told, I was too afraid to do it. So he decided to get a master's degree while I got my bachelor's degree so that we could go to school together. And looking at where I am now, it's amazing to think back that, yes, this man came and picked me up after work each day, and we attended night school together. And after that, I got a little braver and thought I wanted to do my master's degree as a pediatric nurse practitioner. So he decided to get a second master's degree. But by the time Mm -hmm. I got to my doctor of nursing practice degree, he said, I do not want a doctoral degree in engineering. You're good. (laughs) You're on your own. And then off you go. So at the time, there were actually no doctor of nursing practice programs in Texas, so I ventured out to the University of Alabama, 
And it was really there that I discovered my voice in nursing. Before that, I knew about the care that I provided, but not my voice or leadership. So at the time, I was teaching part-time and working in pediatric clinical setting part-time. And my policy professor actually encouraged me to submit a paper for publication on using advanced practice nurses in Texas. I was really shocked and very intimidated, but with her guidance, I did it, and it was published and remains one of the most highly cited articles in the journal. And so this led to some phone calls, you know, asking me to serve on the executive board for Texas nurse practitioners and as a policy advocate for the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. And, And again, I realized at that time, I really had a lot of experience to share, but in nursing, our voices as leaders and advocates are are not as respected or valued as our care. So I went on to continue to serve multiple professional organizations, and I took every learning opportunity along the way. I listened to podcasts like yours, webinars, Mm -hmm. conferences, continuing education, anything, and I learned to speak up. And I also mm-hmm. found my voice in academics and so, you know, the val- recognizing the value of clinical scholarship. And I'm proud to say I was the first nurse practitioner faculty to achieve the rank of full professor with tenure in my university system. And really, by not taking no for an answer and by learning to speak up, that's how this nurse who barely passed her associate degree program became president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners and wow. a leading advocate for human trafficking. Congratulations. We were just talking before about how much nurses have to come out of the shadows. We have to be able to speak up for ourselves because clearly nobody else is going to do it for us. And and really, I don't think anybody else really knows what we're doing. One thing I didn't mention uh, in all of your accolades is that you're the Texas Nurse Practitioner of the Year for this year, 2019-2020. So congratulations on that also. Well, thank you so much for that. You know, when I first graduated as a nurse practitioner, there were only about 1,200 of us in Texas, and now there are almost 25,000. So it's really exciting to see our nursing profession growing and and having that voice, you know, continue. And really, that's where my journey as an anti-trafficking advocate, as as a nursing anti-trafficking advocate started, was here in Texas. So, Mm -hmm. you know, about five years ago or so, I was just happy, you know, teaching and practicing in my primary care pediatric site. There's really nothing particularly special about my practice. I just see kids that need primary care Mm -hmm. in suburban Mm -hmm. Houston. And I'm friends with one of our state senator's wives, and she called me one day, and I knew that she worked against trafficking. And honestly, I thought, oh, she goes to Haiti and Guatemala and places like that and helps Mm -hmm. those poor human trafficking victims. And isn't that wonderful? That's really what I thought. And she called me one day and she said, Jessica, can you help me educate nurses about human trafficking? And I said, Absolutely not. I I don't know anything about human trafficking. You're calling the wrong Mm -hmm. person. And she said at the time, she said, but Jessica, nurses could be the most powerful advocates there encountering victims. And that's when she told me that up to 87% of victims see a healthcare professional without being identified. And I thought, huh, well, that is that. Okay, this is becoming not a how can I help you question, but how can I not help you? And I realized that as nurses, we are trained clinicians. So when we walk into a room, I, I, I describe it like you're going to the optometrist. You know, you have all of these lenses come in front of your eyes at clear one mm-hmm. or clear two. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, is this abuse? Is this domestic violence? Is this substance addiction or misuse? And you're thinking all of these things, but we did not have a lens for trafficking. 
so that I cannot mm-hmm. recognize what the mind doesn't know. And so I told uh, my friend Carrie at the time, I said, okay, I don't know about human trafficking, but I do know about educating nurses. I do know how mm-hmm. to do that. So you feed me the content and I'll help you, you know, deliver it and I'll be the, I'll mm-hmm. be the process expert. But the more that I learned, the more I realized, oh no, we really have to help. So We ended up making a a statewide accredited continuing education program and trained 22 speakers across the state to start to go and engage and equip nurses. And when we did that, we realized, wow, you know, this, this nurses everywhere were saying, I'm shocked, I'm horrified, I'm appalled, because I knew it wasn't that we were missing them because we were careless or, you know, Mm -hmm. giving discriminatory care or anything like that. We just really didn't know. And so from there, we took this to the national level for the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, and we created the Alliance for Children in Trafficking. And we Mm -hmm. recognized that nursing, even at that time, other major nursing organizations, and nursing was just not there. This was a criminal justice issue. And they were ahead of the curve on us. And everywhere we went, it was all about justice for the victims, which is a really important part. But looking at this with a public health approach and recognizing what nurses can do for prevention and intervention when they encounter potential victims in their setting is a game changer. It really is. And so now we have, you know, influenced legislation, including the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Speaking Act, it's also called Foster SESTA, the Stop, Observe, Ask, Respond, or SOAR for healthcare professionals. And we also have helped to pass state laws, one of those being here in Texas, where we passed a state law requiring all direct care providers in Texas to take continuing education on trafficking. And that's wonderful solely because of nursing intervention. Mm-hmm. And that seems often the case. You know, we hear about changes that are happening in various different aspects of healthcare, and then lo and behold, there's often a nurse that's behind the change. Um, that's that's come in for me so many times. So that puts you right in the heart of all of this. Uh, kind of a whole new. Um, mission for you. I mean, certainly related to what you're doing uh, with pediatrics. Um, So how do, we were just talking about how nurses do not speak up enough. We don't get our voice heard. And so other people speaking about our topics for us often don't address them in the way we would. So how are you amplifying your voice now? Well, you know, it's really important for us to speak into these issues with a nursing perspective. We are the boots on the ground. We are the ones that are encountering these patients. We have the most time with these patients. We are the most trusted profession, and so patients are more likely to uh, to talk with us in a way that's vulnerable, and we have, you know, just that, that way. And so what we're trying to do at, really is our mission for the Alliance of Children and Trafficking is to engage and equip nurses to be able to feel Uh, educated and equipped to intervene should they encounter a potential scenario for trafficking. We provided continuing education. Our organization provided the first asynchronous uh, nationally accredited modules that you can take online to be able to Mm -hmm. know what to do because one of the, the things about this is as we raise awareness of trafficking, which there's so many misperceptions of that in the media, and nurses are susceptible to those misperceptions too. And if we have that and we can't 
engage and equip in a way that's educated, then that can be a, a scary thing. You know, a lot of times people think uh, trafficking is, you might have heard on, you know, social media, uh, somebody posts something like, I don't usually post this, but I was almost abducted by a human trafficker in the grocery mm-hmm. store parking lot. And mm-hmm. they'll say something like that, which that's not really how trafficking occurs. And one of the reasons why we're so passionate about pediatric populations is that most uh, trafficking victims, especially sex trafficking victims, are children. There's mm-hmm. two main types of trafficking that occur in the United States. That's going to be labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And although sex trafficking has more attention in the media, labor trafficking is actually more prevalent. So sex trafficking can occur through um, usually it's going to be recruited online. That's how victims are usually recruited, and the average age is about 14 years old. And one of the things that you know we're concerned about is during this time of COVID, you know, sex trafficking and labor trafficking does not go on hold. You know, criminal enterprise, they do not say, oh, well, you know, we probably should take some precautions here and health precautions and keep in isolation. Mm-hmm. No. You've got people at home and buyers are usually more affluent and have some money to spend. They don't have other venues to spend it on, so they've got some expendable cash and they're lonely and they're isolated and they're anxious, and so that's going to increase demand. Mm-hmm. And you've got children that are sitting at home, many of them unsupervised because parents are having to try to work to provide food Mm -hmm. and shelter and a living, or parents may think that they're doing online school. But what the initial statistics that have come out show us that exploitation not only is continuing during this COVID isolation period, but is increasing dramatically. So, yeah. the, um, you know, because we've got social disconnection, housing instability, just more vulnerability. But what we've seen is in the first month, there was a 160% increase in the report oh. of child abuse material. In, now, in some March. Some people would call that, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, Leanne. In, in March? In March, yes. Oh. Some people oh. would call that child pornography, but we don't use that word because there is no pornography for children. We call it child abuse materials. Usually there's about 300,000 tips to the National Center for Ex- uh, Exploited and Missing Children per month, globally 300,000, but we're up to 1.3 million tips per month, which is just crazy. That's about 34 cyber tips per, per minute that are happening oh. reporting child exploitation. And actually of those now, we, we had about 1 million reported per year in 2014, but over 18 million tips in 2018, and that's increasing. Now, one of the really scary things about that is more than 70% of those tips came through Facebook Messenger reports. And mm-hmm. Facebook Messenger is moving to a fully encrypted platform. So once they are fully encrypted, those reports will no longer come in, and we will not have those tips uh, reported. And really, you know, the... Um, that the law enforcement can only do so much to protect children and their online presence. And so we really need to engage and equip nurses that are working with children to recognize signs of exploitation, to recognize signs of abuse, and to intervene. Now we don't have children in school. They're not in sport events. They're not in church. They're not in community activities. And so they're just isolated at home, potentially with their trafficker or their abuser, which is really concerning. Mm-hmm. And there, um, uh, one way that we might be able to see them would be if they're coming into the clinic and the clinics are not open. So, um, you know, 
again, if you're doing telehealth, which is, I understand, had gone from uh, a good, a, a thoughtful idea uh, in February and in March, within three weeks, we're all doing telehealth. So it c completely changed the industry. But that means that that child is probably, if they have a trafficker or a parent who is abusing them, is sitting right beside them as the uh, telehealth interview is going on. Isn't that so? Absolutely. And Leanne, you bring up a really good point because I think that's one of the reasons why nurses often miss human trafficking because we have misconceptions about who a trafficker is and what right. a trafficker looks like. And really all children in the United States are vulnerable to trafficking. That's a really important message to hear because a lot of time we think, you know, it's just children who are socioeconomically disadvantaged or, and obviously there are some vulnerable points that make them vulnerabilities that make them more susceptible to trafficking. Those vulnerabilities are going to include placement in the foster care system or interaction with the juvenile justice system, a history of sexual abuse, and history mm -hmm. of running away, all of those things are going to increase the vulnerability to trafficking. But many children are trafficked by a family member, by mm -hmm. a friend, by someone that they know. Most of the time it's going to be someone that they know that has groomed and exploited them in some way. Children are targeted and traumatized and tricked into trafficking. So mm -hmm. people think, how can this happen? You know, they think, Parents want to protect their children from stranger danger so they won't be trafficked. And they're afraid of, you know, the proverbial str uh, stranger that's in a, a white van, like I said, in the grocery store parking lot. But who they should really be afraid of is the 2,000 people that they invite into their bedroom every night mm -hmm. that are their quote-unquote friends on social media. Because mm -hmm. um, only about 60% of children use privacy settings on their social media accounts which means that it is a predator's playground. They can mm. just go on uh, and look for vulnerable children who are disclosing every detail about themselves and who are saying, like me, follow me, and mm -hmm. they're giving all kinds of information. So it's easy for a trafficker to get in there. And I'll give you some examples of some cases that I've worked with. One case uh, was a, um, a collegiate athlete, actually. She was uh, going to be a collegiate athlete in high school, and she had a particularly bad breakup that played out over social media. And a trafficker saw this and saw a perfect mm -hmm. opportunity to speak into that and posed as a peer from a neighboring school and said, you know, oh, I can't believe that this guy broke up with you. This is so sad. This is so awful. And you're wonderful. And you're this and you're that until she finally, you know, agreed to leave her family and to go mm -hmm. off with this trafficker thinking that it was a, a romantic relationship. Another mm -hmm. really great resource. Uh, before before about, you go on, I want to yeah. you know kind of heighten that. Um, we talked when you were talking earlier. You mentioned Guatemala, Guatemala and Haiti, and I think that is true for a lot of us. We think, well, this doesn't happen in the United States. And what you're saying, all of this that you're saying now, this is what's happening here in the United States. And um, I think that's uh, really really critical. And then the other aspect of you know how often um, with stories and books and movies and whatever else, um, young girls are, are kind of taught that romantic uh, kind of this is what love looks like. And, and so they're already 
primed before anybody else comes in to try and say, okay, you know, this is, this is how I'm going to lead you to, you know, happiness forever. And so why would we be surprised that, you know, and especially I think 15, 16 years old, they figure they've, they're already growing up and they have it all under control and it never occurs to them to talk to their parents about it. So yeah, um, just that was something that popped into my mind as you were talking there. I wanted to make sure that we were clear this is happening in the United States. It absolutely is, and some of the widespread news media attention on some prominent cases have really elevated the public's perception and and awareness of trafficking, and that would include... Cases like R. Kelly and Jeffrey Epstein and mm-hmm. and those kinds of cases raising awareness of what trafficking looks like. And you're absolutely right because the person that's at most risk for sex trafficking in the United States is a teenager that is born and living in the United States. And mm-hmm. that is a, a really uh, scary thing. And I've seen several cases in my practice. One, one case that I identified in my practice that I know I would not have identified had I not had awareness and training was a teenage girl who came in actively suicidal and mm. she um, had uh, she was going to be admitted to my service to watch her until she was medically cleared and go on to inpatient psychiatric care and as is the case with all of these children that I see it's always heartbreaking and you always mm-hmm. want to do what's best for them and you see this girl came in she had a history of self-harming behaviors she had a history of substance misuse and addiction she had some criminal convictions for shoplifting and things like that, and she had dropped out of school. Her parents were divorced and living in two different states, and you're thinking, (sighs) what can I do in this 12-hour shift? you know, that I have ahead of me. And I, I recognized that I was using a label for patients and I was calling it troubled. I would think, oh, Mm -hmm. this teen is so troubled. And I meant it from a very, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned place, but I recognized that I was labeling her. And so as I started to ask her questions, I recognized that she was being trafficked by her father. And I think this is a really important thing because as nurses, we, uh, you know, you hear the word trafficker, and a question I get a lot of times is that the same thing as a pimp, and that's the only time you'll hear me use that word because it mm-hmm. conveys a societal glorification and a, a mental image that is just not there. Traffickers mm-hmm. can be mothers, fathers, soccer coaches, pastors, teachers, veterans, anybody can be a trafficker, and so we have to wow. really drop our guard as nurses and recognize that you know somebody that looks like they have it all together may not be. And this Mm -hmm. girl, when she was telling me basically that her father was trafficking her to his friends, her mindset was that she was grateful for that because she said, I'm the reason my parents got divorced in the first place. And I have, you know, been on drugs and he's bailed me out of jail and he still lets me live there. And at least this is something I can do to earn my keep and to live there. So a wow. lot of that's the yeah. other problem is you know you have this this uh, vision of like uh, somebody gonna, is going to write a secret note to the pizza delivery man saying save me or you know as soon mm-hmm. as they get to the hospital okay we're safe but a lot of victims do not recognize their own victimization they feel like they are mm-hmm. victims of their own poor choices or 
you know, making, and, and they feel like they're not worth anything. They're constantly told by their trafficker, you know, you're not worth anything. And another misconception is that, you know, these trafficking victims, these children are, you know, hidden somewhere, which certainly does happen, but that's not the, mm-hmm. that's not the norm. That's not usually what happens. They, these are kids that are going to school, uh, that are going to church with you, that are going to, um, you know, extracurricular activities that live next to you. These are kids that are just walking around free and society because they have trauma bonds that connect them to their trafficker. They may think their trafficker is the only one that has shown them love or Mm -hmm. that has, you know, at the beginning, things are good, and so they're constantly trying to get back to that beginning stage, you know, Mm -hmm. when things are good. Uh, A lot of times uh, drug addiction is used as an invisible tether, and some traffickers have just, you know, even written abhorrent manuals on how to maximize drug addiction so that that victim Mm -hmm. is coming back to you every three hours or so. So they don't want to overdose, but they want to make sure that even if they decide, hey, I'm going to go find somebody and and leave, they'll come back because of that. And this is especially true of children who are, are, are vulnerable to this. And so many times if they leave their trafficking situation, then they'll go back because they don't know any other life. And we have to remember as pediatric experts that when kids experience significant trauma, many times their emotional development arrests at that time. So even as a nurse, if you're seeing someone who's 20 or 25, but they've been trafficked since they were 13 or 14, they're mm-hmm. going to act like a 13 or 14-year-old. They may mm-hmm. not know how to drive. They may never have gone to a bank. They may never have you know, done anything on their own, and, and they don't know how to live out in the real world. They only know what they call the life. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about, whether that's a parent or it's a neighbor or the, uh, the softball coach or whoever it is, what they're doing is they're grooming these girls. So they're not just, you know, grabbing them one night and having sex with them and then uh, putting them out for prostitution. They're um, building a relationship with them over time that makes that child, often girls, um, feel good and feel protected. And then it's later on when they just start to kind of bring in um, some of the other behavior, whether that's, you know, um, sexual or whether that's, like you said, labor is another um, aspect of it. Um, anything more with the groomed aspect of it that maybe nurses might be able to notice? Yes, absolutely. It's important to, to watch that because as children, you know, children are uh, online, a lot of this comes actually through sexting. And mm-hmm. so sexting has been normalized kind of in the teen culture as an expected part of dating relationships. And so sometimes teens online will think that they're in the context of a dating relationship mm-hmm. and they'll start to send you know, mildly suggestive images. I, I've worked mm-hmm. with uh, victims that this is exactly how this has happened. And they mm-hmm. may send mildly suggestive images and then immediately the feedback they get is, wow, you're amazing, you're so beautiful, you're so gorgeous, um, you know, and then they send more and more until they finally have that sexually explicit image, and then it, all of a sudden it turns, the switch flips, and it's blackmail, or it's sextortion, mm-hmm. right. or it's saying, you give me more pictures, or I'm taking these to your parents, I'm going to get your sister and make, you know, her do this, I'm going to tell your teachers, I'm going to publish this on Snapchat, or those kinds of things, 
And you bring up another important point, Leanne, because often these are these are girls, uh, but boys are definitely exploited right. too. And having right. that mindset of it's only girls, and what we the images we usually see in the media are of white girls, which actually girls of color are disproportionately affected. Um, it's really important to um, to recognize that and to not have any. Um, bias or stereotype about who could be a victim. And then, of course, labor trafficking victims can be either. Uh, we, through Children are exploited through labor trafficking in a variety of ways. It can, most of the time, it's going to be through agricultural experience. Sometimes it's through domestic, um, domestic servitude or hotels or things like that. Um, and, uh, and that often can happen as well. And they can mm-hmm. be exploited in that way. And a lot of times it's because they're tricked or traumatized or, or groomed into it because they think they're coming to a promise of a better working income. You know, they might be making more money. They might be raising mm-hmm. themselves out of poverty. Uh, and even nurses can be trafficked. And, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know we're coming up on a break, so I didn't want to go too much into that if it was time to take <laughs> a break. You're so good at this. I was just going to say that we're, we're coming a little bit close to it, but we're fine. Um, so uh, one of the things I want to talk about, too, uh, and not necessarily right when we get back, but I, I want to uh, talk a little bit more about this, maybe the aspect of how nurses get groomed and how um, uh you know, various different cultures. You were talking about the labor aspect of it. If uh, a child is in a family that is struggling for food uh, and they feel like they can be kind of the hero of the family, this is uh, obviously another way that that they can get sucked into this. So, yes, we are going to take a break. This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And I am Leanne Meyer. I'm here today. Um, the title of our, our episode today is Nursing, a Voice to Expose Human Trafficking of Children. And my guest is Dr. Jessica Peck. She is a professor of nursing at Baylor University. She is president-elect of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. She is the Texas Nurse Practitioner of the Year for this year. And we've been talking about all things uh, trafficking, particularly around children. We'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community, and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 
80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual Leadership Summit on October 22, 2020. Womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm Leanne Meyer, and our episode today is called Nursing, a Voice to Expose Human Trafficking of Children. And my uh, guest today is uh, Dr. Jessica Peck, and she's a professor of nursing at Baylor University and also um, a nurse practitioner in pediatrics for the last 20 years, and so a great expert for this particular topic. Um, so, Jessica, do you want to talk a little bit more about the different ways that um, people and children especially can be trafficked? Absolutely. So we have to remember that trafficking is actually the second largest and fastest growing criminal industry in the world. Estimated makes a revenue of $150 billion annually worldwide. So it's 
becoming more prevalent than the drug trade because people are not consumable commodities. For drugs, you know, they have to make them and then distribute them and then, you know, start the cycle over again. But people, you can sell over and over and over again. And one trafficking victim can make an employer hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. And so they're highly motivated to groom and to invest in finding these victims. Many times they'll hire recruiters that will help identify victims for them. And sometimes, sadly, those victims, those recruiters are victims themselves who have been mm-hmm. promoted within the hierarchy of the victims. So that can happen. I was talking before the break a little bit about labor trafficking. And one example I can give you of nurses being trafficked was a group of nurses actually from the Philippines who were promised a good job mm-hmm. to come over mm-hmm. here in the United States and to work. And as soon as they get here, the pattern is always the same. Their papers are taken from them. They're usually, you know, given very poor living conditions and threatened with violence to their families or uh, deportation or other legal action. And they're here working in and around us as nurses for weeks before this is discovered. And so that can definitely happen. For children, it can be in, uh, you know, migrant farm work or uh, it can be, like I said, in hospitality industries. And like you said, when we have this time of COVID where families are struggling financially and they're looking for places, teenagers may think, I'm the hero that's now gotten a job, you know, gotten a job that sounds too good to be true, but they're too young and perhaps naive to know that, you know, something is too good to be true. And so they may find themselves in a situation where they're, where they're being trafficked. Usually there's going to be some isolation there. You know, there's going to, they're going to isolate that person from their family more and more, whether that's by threats or whether that's by finesse, you know, by simulating a romantic relationship. It can be mm-hmm. either or both. It can be any of those kinds of things. But it's important for us as nurses to just be recognizing and to be aware, especially as our minds are all on COVID, especially in our care environments. We're experiencing such trauma and such stress and worried about Mm -hmm. people um, having COVID. But the truth is that these trafficked victims are are at risk of having COVID as well. Mm -hmm. And so looking at, you know, just different ways that we can impact trafficking as nurses, one of the ways that we can do this is by prevention. So especially now, nurses are the most trusted profession. All of you listeners out there have gotten a phone call at one point or the other from your neighbor, from your friend, from your family (laughs) member saying, you know, somebody has Mm -hmm. hurt their toe or somebody is, you know, something that they say, ask a nurse, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to, I'm sure all of you are speaking into that, into your sphere of influence, not just in your clinical practice, although that too. So we need to start speaking up about online presence for kids. We need to tell people as the most trusted profession that you need to protect your online presence, that you need to have a private social media platform. One important thing to know, Leanne, is that there actually are no social media platforms approved for use in the United States for kids under 13. So Mm. for all of you parents out there, if your kid is not 13, it really shouldn't even be a point of discussion because in order to make an account, you have to click a button that says yes, I'm 13 years old, and if you're not, then you've just violated the terms of use of that platform and voided any legal protection available to you should something happen on mm-hmm. uh, on social media, should your child be exploited or abused. And so that should be a no until they're at least 13. 
Children should also use a generic profile photo so that traffickers and recruiters who are going through social media don't see, oh, here's a vulnerable teenager who is saying, like me, follow me, but instead they see a beach or a puppy, and that can just be a scroll by, Uh, and that could be a child that's saved right there just by having a generic profile photo and something that doesn't say, I'm 13 years old, I go to this school, and I want Mm -hmm. more followers. The other thing that people can do is uh, disable geotagging or geolocators. Many of these social media platforms, the automatic default, like on uh, on the map setting, is to find where they are. So I worked Mm -hmm. with one victim that was uh, picked up on school after school and on Thursdays he would have to wait for 30 minutes for his parents to get there because they had a meeting a standing meeting on Thursdays but a recruiter saw this on online by following their uh, their activity and saw hey every Thursday this kid sits on this bench right outside the school where there's a park so the recruiter just started posing as a runner and would just run by every day and run mm-hmm. by and run by and just till the child started to think oh there's the guy that runs here every day. And then they would start to, you know, have a conversation and start to strike up a relationship. And that all happened from a social media map until he was recruited into trafficking. So those are, those are important things I think we need to talk about. Parents need to look at who are their kids talking to. Gaming is the same thing. You know, there's chat features on games uh, that that strangers can uh, talk to kids to. I went and talked to a school not too long before the COVID shutdown happened, and I asked. It was a group of eighth graders. I said, has anyone been contacted by somebody on gaming? And uh, several of the boys in there raised their hand and said, yeah, on Fortnite, a guy asked us for um, naked pictures. And I said, did Mm. you tell your parents? And they said, oh, no, absolutely Mm. not. Because they'd never let us go on the gaming again. Yes. Right. So, uh, so it's important, you know, as parents to make this a conversation, to make this that you're not in trouble. And if they do experience some exploitation, if they do receive an obscene picture, that they can come and talk to you about it and that you recognize that that was likely traumatic for them to see. And so mm-hmm. that's important. That's important to see. The other thing that as nurses we need to recognize is the health impacts of trafficking, a lot of times these patients are not getting regular medical care because, again, all the trafficker cares about is making money. So they're usually only going to present for care when they're, when they're at a point where they cannot work um, or, or make money. Now, it's important to recognize that trafficking victims can present in any clinical environment. So you may be out there thinking, well, I don't work in the emergency room. Well, I had a patient present in my primary care office. I was just mm-hmm. by myself and had a four-year-old patient that uh, was, ended up being trafficked again, by a family member, and here I was, you know, there. So we're also seeing an increase in trafficking victims present in aesthetic practices or cosmetology practices, surgical practices for trauma that they may have experienced, or chronic health impacts. Another case that I saw was a teenager who kept presenting in diabetic ketoacidosis. She had type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. We thought, Mm -hmm. she's a teenager. This is what teenagers do. Sometimes they have difficulty accepting their disease process and they don't take care of themselves but we didn't recognize she was a victim of labor trafficking. So we have to recognize, you know, just the the impacts and the reasons that they may present for care. And uh, obviously this is going to cause significant psychological trauma. So it's important to know about trauma-informed care because these are usually patients that are not easy to work with. They've learned how to Mm -hmm. survive. They've Mm -hmm. learned how to be tough. 
They may spit on you. They may be really abusive. They may be combative. Um, they may be completely submissive. But, you know, all of us as nurses, we have that amazing spidey sense, right? That just <laughs> something yeah. is not right here. And that's one of the first things that you do as a nurse is you learn to listen to that voice. And you stop and you say, okay, what is this voice? And that's something that should be there. So if, you, if you're out there and you don't really know much about trauma-informed care, I would encourage you to seek education on that because it talks about just a way of being. And as nurses, it just articulates, I think, what is already in our wheelhouse, making sure that you're providing a safe environment because this can be dangerous for you, for the other patients there, as well as the potential victim. Being trustworthy and transparent is really, really important because as as I said before, this really has been kind of taken over trafficking as a criminal issue, a criminal justice issue. And one of the things that was shocking to me in working with that law enforcement is that they regularly will use deception as a professional tool to right. elicit a confession. And their heart is at the best interest for the victim. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as nurses, we would never lie to our patients. And so how do you do that and work with that? So that's really important to have processes in place and to have peer support because this can be traumatic. If you are a victim of sexual abuse or exploitation or have some other history of trauma, we need to create environments that say, hey, this is not the patient for me to take care of, and that be okay and that be completely normal and acceptable so that we don't cause vicarious trauma to ourselves and trying to help other people. Mm-hmm. So all of those things are, are really important in trying to empower victims. I think, you know, one of the most important things for nurses to know is as you start to learn about trafficking, it is not your job to do everything. You have to practice within your scope of practice. Once you see and recognize potential exploitation, it's not the goal to get them to self-disclose and to say, oh, I'm a victim of trafficking. Will you please rescue me? (laughs) (laughs) That's not what happens, you know. Um, it, It should be to empower them. And obviously, Every state in the United States, and uh, we would all report uh, child exploitation, and we're mandatory reporters of that. So if you suspect abuse, you have to report it. But it's really important to do that in a trauma-informed way and to recognize their need for survival and try to give them a sense of control. So other things that how, you can How do, would you do that? Explain if you have it sure. like the four-year-old. <clears throat> you uh, are starting to suspect that there's uh, some kind, something going on here that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is not um, uh, what it should be. Um, how would you go about helping to empower this child? Such a great question, Leanne. First thing that I would remember is that I am not trained in forensic interviews. I am okay. not a sexual assault nurse examiner, so I'm not going to act like that. I'm not a police officer. I'm not a detective. I'm, I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. So what is my job in that moment? My job is, number one, to provide a safe environment. Number two is to attend to any specific health care needs that they have that are urgent and pressing at that moment. And three is to connect them to, uh, to the services that they need to uh, to go from there. And so in that moment, I'm going to use a tool that we call pediatric choices, and all the pediatric nurses out there will will recognize this, but it works for adults too, and especially adult victims. You start giving them two choices that you can live with both choices. So I start very small choices. You know, would you like to take your temperature or your blood pressure first? Would you like to sit on the chair or the table? Would you like to wear a paper gown or a cloth gown? 
Would you like to be in room one or room two? All of which are fine. And after they start to make a series of choices, then they're going to start to feel more comfortable and in control. And then I'm only going to do what I'm trained to do. If they, so, for example, in this case of this four-year-old girl that I saw, she needed connection to an advocacy center that was trained to do forensic interviews and exams. And so I transferred her there. I did not ask every question. I took care of what I needed to take care of in that moment to make sure that she was safe and her urgent health care needs were addressed. Great. That's wonderful. Uh, So I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Um, Did you want to go ahead? Sure. Sure. So, uh, again, you know, the the goal of the nurse is to, one, provide a safe environment, two, tend to any immediate health care needs, and three, connect them to available services. And we're not going to force them to disclose their trafficking situation, especially if they're an adult victim. They need some empowerment and some agency in there. But you can let them know that this is a safe place that they can come for help. I've seen amazing nurses everywhere all around the world responding to trafficking, which has just been amazing. One group of nurses, they created a drop-in area in the ER where victims of trafficking could come. They could wash their clothes. They could get something to eat. They could just get care with no questions asked and mm-hmm. uh, until they felt safe, you know, to exit their trafficking situation. We want them to feel powered, empowered to exit. It's not mm-hmm. our job to rescue patients. And another thing that nurses will ask me is, okay, well, what about a checklist? Is there a screening tool? And there really is no evidence to... Uh, to recommend one particular screening tool universally. And we want to learn from the domestic violence screenings. How many of you have even been a patient where you've been asked, do you feel safe in your home? Do you, you know, and just in a very mm-hmm. matter-of-fact mm-hmm. sort of way. And what we've learned in the early stages of trafficking research, which is still in its infancy, is that questioned, trauma-informed questioning by a nurse is much more effective in identifying risk than a standard screening questionnaire. So it's important to ask, you know, just trauma-informed questions and to be uh, ready to do that and telling the patient that, you know, you have rights. This may be the first time that they've ever had someone say, this is not your fault. This is not mm-hmm. okay for exactly. someone to treat you that way. This you, is not normal. Services. Yes. This is not normal. Mm-hmm. That may be the first time that they've ever heard that. And it may take them some time to understand that. And so that, that's what you want to do. Things that we don't do or we don't rescue the patient, we don't ask about immigration, we don't make promises that we can't keep, mm-hmm. we don't mm-hmm. force or deceive or coerce them in an effort to, quote, unquote, save them. We want to make sure that we um, have a trauma-informed and victim-centered approach. So, you know, it's really important to, yeah. I want to interrupt just a little bit because we're getting uh, close to the end of the show, and I want to make sure that we go over ways to keep kids safe. Um, Mm -hmm. You've talked a little bit about it, but if you could uh, go into a little bit more, that would be great. Sure. So ways to keep kids safe are going to be absolutely to... um, to look at their online safety. The other thing that we need to do as nurses is to raise our voices and talk about this with our neighbors. They trust us. Talk about mm-hmm. this in your circle of influence. Say, this is happening. This is going on. And, you know, for uh, NAPNAP Partners, you can go to napnappartners.org and find a lot of resources there. That's napnappartners.org. We started a program where we have what we call ACT Advocates, the Alliance for Children and Trafficking ACT Advocates. And we have advocates trained all over the country 
Murphy, who can come and provide for you free presentations about human trafficking. We talk to Boy Scout troops. We talk to uh, nursing units. We talk to school nurses. We talk to teachers. We talk to anybody that will listen to us so that we can recognize exploitation and victimization. The other way that you can keep kids safe and really help is to talk to your institution and make sure that your institution has a protocol, a policy in place to deal with this. Because if you are able to recognize them but then don't have the support of your institution, and it doesn't matter if you work for an institution that employs 40,000 people or four people, everybody needs to think about what would I do if a potential trafficking victim came because you are going to be like me and thinking, oh, that's never going to happen to me, not in my community, not in my backyard. And then it does happen. So those are things that you can do. And there are a lot of resources, again, on napnappartners.org. There's a heel trafficking protocol that's there. There's a shared learnings manual uh, from Dignity Health. Uh, There's all kinds of tools there that you can do. But you can also know the human trafficking hotline number. And that number is 888-3737-888, which is easy to memorize. I'll say it again. It's 888-3737-888. 888. Or you can text the word HELP to be free, and that the number would be free, 233733. And if you just look up Human Trafficking Hotline, that's the, the number that you can call. It doesn't necessarily have to be an emergency. You can just call uh, just to say, I need some information, and, and, uh, and they can help you with, connect you to resources. There's also now ICD-10 codes that you can use to, to, uh, for patients' records. And nurses, I've seen amazing nurses across the country who have set up data collection uh, things with informatics that are identifying patients at risk for vulnerability using the ICD-10 programs, which is amazing. I've seen another nurse in the Houston area whose niece was actually trafficked through her own ER, and she was shocked and horrified, and now she's galvanized the whole Texas medical center to create policies in place to deal with this when this happens. If you are interested, if this is really something that you think, okay, I really want to get involved in this, you can have training to become an ACT advocate, and we can train you to be an ACT a grassroots advocate in your community so that you can engage and equip and empower resources around your area like the schools and, uh, and clinics and healthcare systems to be able to put into place interprofessional alliances. That's really where it's going because healthcare has to work with law enforcement and social services and Jessica, we, I hate to cut in because you're telling so much wonderful information, but um, we're really close to the end. Um, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? They can do that uh, through at the NAPNAP Partners website. There's an email there, or they can email me. My email is jessica underscore peck at baylor.edu. Okay, that would be great. Um, there, I know there's a thousand more things we could talk about, and I think we can need to think about having you back on again, um, uh, which would be great. But um, we are very close to the end here. Is there any one thing that you would like to say uh, before we get off in like 30 seconds or 45 seconds uh, that you really want people to, to remember? If they remember nothing else, what should they remember? Absolutely. You know, I think in this 
in this crisis and in this time of where we're talking about racial tensions and COVID and child exploitation, we need to know that we own our, our expertise as nursing. Nursing voice is really, really important. And our profession often requires grueling work, which costs us physically and mentally and emotionally, and we struggle with that and in these uncertain times. And so I would just encourage everybody to, to press on out there. You know, despite the dangers, we are the most, we are there in the most fragile and vulnerable times during human life. And we are keeping confidences and protecting autonomy and cheering progress and serving daily doses of hope. And I just salute every single one of you out there. And I challenge just, you to be kind Jessica, to yourself. I have to stop. And I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> we will definitely have you back. So this I has been once. I'd love to be back. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> Thank you. This has been Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing, and our episode has been Nursing, a Voice to Expose Human Trafficking of Children, and we've been uh, talking with Dr. Jessica Peck, Professor of Nursing in Baylor University. She is also an expert on child trafficking. Um, I'm sure there's um, so many things, so many questions that um, our, our listeners have, too. If you have anything, please contact me at Leanne. L-E-A-N-N-E at onceanurse.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.